Homeboy Industries is the largest gang rehabilitation and re-entry program in the world. It works with formerly gang-involved and previously incarcerated people in Los Angeles, enabling them to redirect their lives. This week's guest on True Humanitarian is Thomas Vosso, the CEO of Homeboy Industries. He's written a book about his experience called The Homeboy Way, and that's what we talk about in this episode. Thomas has a really interesting story. He first worked as a very successful corporate executive before making a radical career change and becoming the CEO of Homeboy Industries. As I read Thomas's book, uh, I thought a lot about the similarities and the contrast in his experience to the international humanitarian sector and, and found it really fascinating. We had a great conversation about leadership and management, how to balance profit and purpose, the role of spirituality in the workplace, and how joy and focus on the individual should drive your work as a leader. Thomas describes himself as a committed capitalist. But having read his book and spoken to him, I would like to respectfully disagree. I think he's actually a good old-fashioned Scandinavian-type social democrat. He just hasn't realized it yet. However, it may take another lengthy conversation to convince him of that point. I hope you enjoy the conversation. As always, like us, review us, follow us on social media, all that stuff, and keep your excellent ideas for new episodes coming. You can, as always, reach us on email info at trumanitarian.org. Thomas Vosso, uh, welcome to True Humanitarian. Thank you for having me. You're the CEO of uh, Homeboy Industries, and, and we'll explore a bit what that is. And you've just written a new book called The Homeboy Way that we're going to talk uh, a bit about. I, I had a chance to read that book. It's, it's a fascinating read, and I think your story has a lot to tell us in the humanitarian sector. It's a really interesting example of what leadership means in different contexts and how to ensure that you remain purpose-driven in whatever you do. But I'd love to begin with, with you telling us what, what is Homeboy Industries. Uh, it's, it's very well known in the, in the States, but I'm not sure internationally it is as well known. So could you give us an, an overview of what that is? Sure. Thank you, Lars. Uh, Homeboy Industries was uh, essentially where we're a nonprofit organization, and uh, we help former gang members and f the formerly incarcerated people uh, change their life and get on the straight and narrow and become contributing members of our society. Uh, Homeboy was founded uh, over 30 years ago by a Jesuit priest uh, named uh, Greg Boyle, Father Greg Boyle, and has, as a first stop, as when he was a priest, he was stationed in Dolores Mission, which is the poorest parish of the whole Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Uh, and this was back in the late 80s and early 90s. And as it turns out, uh, Dolores Mission Area was the epicenter of gang violence in Los Angeles. Uh, in the parish, there's eight different rival gangs, all you know, a block or two apart from each other. Uh, and it was a terrible situation. And, and what Greg wanted to do is figure out how do we get young men out of gang life and life of crime and, and to do something different. And uh, he, Greg hit upon a very simple, obvious concept that if you uh, can employ somebody or give them enough money for food and shelter, they're not going to go back running with the gang because they don't have a family, they don't have a support system, and they were running with the gang to earn some money for 
the basic needs in life. And so uh, early on, Homeboy started as a as essentially a jobs program. Greg, Father Greg, was able to convince local businesses to hire hire these young man, men. Uh, and so then over the years, it grew from that from that effort to uh, not just a jobs program, but we have our businesses, and we can talk about that in a minute, our social enterprise businesses. But essentially, uh, what it became is an organization that helps people heal from their trauma, since every one of the men and women we work with are victims of complex trauma. Uh, they've been victims from a young age. They were jumped in a gang when they were 10, 12, 15 years old, uh, never had a support system, as I said. So at Homeboy, when people come through our doors looking for help, uh, we help them heal from the trauma of their young age. You know, we have a saying that other people have said, but if you know, if you don't transform your pain, you'll transmit it. And that's what these folks are doing when, the, when they're still running with the gang uh, along the way. So today we're a, a nonprofit organization, $30 million. We raised $30 million. We spent $30 million. Over 8,000 people walk through our doors every year seeking some type of help for us all for free. The homeboy story in itself, such an inspirational story, but but to then add your story into it, it actually makes it even more interesting because you started out some someplace very, very different from homeboy industries and, and, and gang violence. Could you tell us a bit about your own background? Yeah, I, I came out of corporate America. I was a corporate executive. Uh, my last role was uh, EVP of Aramark Corporation, which is a multinational of food service and uniform service company, uh, $12 billion uh, business. I was EVP. I ran the $2 billion set of uniform businesses for Aramark. Um, you know, I love my corporate life. It, it's, I, I love business. I'm a, I, even when I go to conferences now, I still say I'm a committed capitalist because I believe well-run businesses are good for our society. And oftentimes the conferences I'm speaking on behalf of Homeboy, this little murmur goes across the crowd when I say I'm a committed capitalist. Yeah, and it'll go down very well with our audience here at True Humanitarian. We are all committed capitalists, at, at least in our spare time. <laughs> right. There you go. But uh, but to me, like a, a well-run business is good for our society. You know, they have good jobs. Uh, people's life's dreams can come true via those jobs. And you're providing a product and service hopefully someone wants and will pay you for it. All right. So that being said, I, I love my corporate role. Uh, it was a very entrepreneurial type of business environment through through hard work and if you're smarter than the next fellow over you can you would succeed and uh and since it was a service business you know at Aramark we had no special technologies or patents it was like you had to lead the team to do, perform the service as well you know picking up dirty laundry and serving hot dogs and serving cups of coffee it's not a sexy business but done well uh people will pay you for the, the services provided and so I rose up through the ranks you know at a young age I was running a a $50 million business, and that grew to $200 million, and eventually got promoted up to run, the, like I said, the $2 billion businesses. But along the way, Aramark uh, invested a lot into its leadership, a lot of training, a lot of, uh, you know, adding to my toolkit along the way. And uh, <clears throat> I think what's interesting, as I knew, at, you know, as you're, running, as you're in these corporate jobs, I think they have a certain shelf life. And so after 26 years and being a public company, a private company, and private equity guys owning us, I knew I wanted to go off and find a different chapter of my career. And so um, I feel so fortunate uh, to, to be a homeboy. But to close the chapter on my Aramark career, I've learned so much about how to run businesses, how to be successful, and what teamwork was all like. But there was something always gnawing at me about my time at Aramark. I was really successful. I, once someone tells me the rules of a game, I, I'll know how to win within those rules. 
Uh, but oftentimes, not all the time, but sometimes I would feel like we would be doing things that would leave the, our employees behind, right? And so a seminal moment for me was in the 2008 recession. Remember, we had a worldwide recession, uh, quite difficult, and, um, and so many businesses were downsizing. And so even my businesses, we had to downsize. And I remember we, we downsized, and for my businesses, we were still going to make, at the end of the year, making profit, $140 million of profit. This is on $2 billion of revenue, $140 million of profit. And I still remember the CEO of the corporation saying to me, Tom, that's not good enough. You got to get another $10 million back. And, I, and as he's saying this to me, I'm knowing that, boy, for me to get another $10 million back, I know I'm going to have to lay off another 500 people. And some of these are long-term, like we already cut out all the fat, but some of these are long-term employees. Some of them we've, we've been with, they have dedicated their lives to the corporation. So I'm thinking, well, where's this, where's the contract we have with these employees? And so we're, so essentially, look, I, I was a, I was a corporate guy, saluted and went, and we made those cuts, but I felt like, wow, at the end of the day, whether we made $150 million of profit or $140 million of profit, it didn't change the share, the, the valuation of the company over the long term, but it did change people's lives. And at that point, it, it was in my mind to say, hmm, I wonder if there's a different way of doing business that could, you can bring people along all the way as opposed to most of the way. So you have this really interesting description of how you're trained to take this very, very senior role in, in the private sector. I mean, you, you were in the NFL of, of the private sector, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a small deal. And you describe it as you, you have this, this great expression, the, the $6 million man that they somehow took you apart and built you back up, spending a lot of money doing so. And, and yet, in spite of all this training and honing of your skills, and, and, and as you say, I'm, I'm sure you're, ex you're excellent at that, it, it somehow clashes with your, your personal values or your belief in what a business should be and what society should be. Was was the problem that they didn't take that bit out of you, or, or was did they deliberately leave the, the principles <laughs> in there? Yeah, no. Look, I'm, I, I so I, I appreciate all the training they gave me, and and essentially it was the training of of what's it take to be successful in the marketplace, in this capitalist marketplace, and it, and to do it as a team for sure. But then there's always that last part that as you're as you're trying to push forward for shareholder value, there's the tension point is, well, when does this shareholder have a higher priority than your than your employee? And in American business, at least, it's always the shareholder that has the higher priority, right? And right, they didn't, they didn't sort of delete that part of my training for me. And then maybe they never saw that along the way. Um, But look, I, I love my time in my corporate world, and, and those are good people, and they, they're generous people, and they help out. But I, to me, it was a flaw in our system, is what I was seeing. And I'm thinking, well, was there a better way going forward? But, but maybe I should just rephrase my question in, in a clearer way. Is it, do you think that you need that empathy and that principled you know, nature that obviously you have to succeed in private business or, or is it more does it hold you back from really making the tough decisions i mean do they select you because you have that empathy and you are somehow a complete person who can who who, who can engage with with your stakeholders in 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 a good way but then also make the tough decision where does that piece fit is it just in the way or is it a is it functional to the capital capitalist project if you want 
Yeah, yeah, really interesting question, I, I, I think. Look, I, I think you become, in a, in a people business, in a service or, or organization, again, where you don't have a special technology with a patent, right? If you're just leading people and how well they do the job, you need to have that empathy and you need to have that thought of, of your, your employee and that societal pack. Uh, I think my answer to you would be, it comes down into the way our capital markets are formed and uh, in this private equity world or public company world, uh, when you're trying to meet your 90-day performance and you've made a commitment to the street of meeting, meeting the numbers, you're, you would think that's the most important thing going. Along, let me put it in contrast to this. I love my, as you can tell, I love my time at Aramark. Uh, Aramark acquired a lot of companies. I bought a lot of those companies. And I always was a very intrigued and appreciated those family-run businesses that had multiple generations of families in their business. You, know, you might say there's a downside of how efficient they could be down the line, but that what they did is they had a very long-term perspective about their employee base. And so it's not so much that it, whether you feel for employees, don't feel for employees, does that get you promoted? It's sort of what rules or the games are you sort of playing towards is the, is the way your business model is set up. And then you make this truly dramatic shift, right? It, it, it is a massive thing to go from running a multi-billion dollar company to hanging out with a nonprofit working with former gang members. You got it. Attention throughout your book is this tension between margin and mission, as you put it, or whether you hire the homies, the former gang members to bake bread, or you bake bread to hire more homies, right? And maybe, and it struck me as I read your book, that you, you come into this very purpose-driven organization with a very different culture, with a very strong founder character who, who seems to be an absolutely wonderful man. And there you are with your $6 million man skill set. How, how do you balance margin and mission? What, what, what's, what are the rules of engagement there? Within helping people, we also have, at that time, six social enterprise businesses, a bakery and a cafe and others that would provide uh, uh, the homies a place to, you know, purposeful activity while they were healing from their trauma in, in other ways. And we can talk about those services in a bit. But essentially, it's, it was sort of the businesses were being run in a very much of a nonprofit mission way as opposed to businesses being run in a business way. Business way. And so, so I came in to, to lead as a volunteer to lead the businesses. And early on, you saw that, I saw that clash of margin versus mission. And, and to me, it was a pretty, for homeboy, it was a pretty straightforward what you got to do. So, well, no, no, we need to run. I need I told all the business managers, we need to run this like a for-profit business. But the only, but there is one place in the P&L where we're not going to be as for-profit. It's going to be on the labor line. Our point of our social enterprise business is our cafe and our bakery. We have two to three times as much labor as a for-profit business would have because we're trying to provide purposeful activity and, and skill set training. And so thankfully, we have generous donors who pay us for that labor. So I'm saying to the business manager, no, no, we need to have good quality, good customer service. You need to man manage the shrinkage. You need to manage all the other aspects of the expense structure, but the labor line, and, let, and that gets sort of paid for elsewhere. And so it was very early on about teaching the business managers of the social enterprises how to perform their job and what their expectations were. And so that was pretty straightforward. But then the, on the bigger picture of, of, of margin versus mission and financial resources, you know, 
One of the reasons why Father Greg and the board asked me to come on as CEO was Homeboy was going through another financial uh, 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 crisis, is too strong a word, but crunch. You know, Homeboy Industries is privately funded, uh, nearly all donations and business revenue and very little government revenue. And because of that, um, a lot of stuff was sort of out of, out of kilter. And so early on, I had to sort of work with the, the management team to, to explain how we're going to run, what's going to be our strategy for the year, what's our budget for the year, how to live within that budget, and then move. So all the things are pretty typical about running any organization. We sort of had to do that at, at Homeboy. And but what I came to appreciate, though, is very early on, I remember, I remember sitting with Father Greg, and particularly when I was a volunteer, and, and we were chatting, and, and he says something to me, and I still say this all the time, you know, Homeboy is blessed with so many people volunteering to help us out. But, he's, but he said to me, and I say this to volunteers too, um, come in, um, you, don't, you don't need to sort of contribute right away, just be part of the community, soak it all in, you'll find your way, and you're fine while you c- contribute. What I say to volunteers is, as before they come in, I say, listen, homeboy, we, every day we do a thousand things wrong. We don't answer our phones. We don't respond to voicemails. We, we probably serve cold cups of coffee sometimes. We're, our folks may be a little bit rude. But the one thing we do well every day is our mission and help people get out of gang life. And so let's not be wound up about the side stuff. We'll fix that eventually. But the point is we're not about running an efficient organization. We're about helping people. And so when you take that to the businesses, we, we bake bread to hire homies, not hire homies to bake bread. It's not about the amount of revenue we're getting, but it's about how many jobs we can provide. Maybe one of the reasons that your story spoke to me as much as it did was that I think in many ways, we as humanitarians, a good chunk of us, follow the exact opposite trajectory of what you did. We start out in small NGOs as volunteers across the world in really difficult places. I started in El Salvador, people volunteer in Uganda, in Myanmar, in wherever. And then as we move along and get better at this, we end up where I am right now in Geneva with often jobs in very big corporate type entities. And I think I think a lot of us at this stage of our career feel a detachment from what drove us into the business to begin with. So if we were to imagine that you were to step back into one of the large, we don't have to name it, but let's pick, think of a large nonprofit, sort of one of the more corporate nonprofits in the US, how would you instill some of that purpose focus in an organization with, say, six or 8,000 employees and a, and a budget of three $400 million a year. But, you know, something's that big. How, how do you take all the good stuff from homeboys and get that into an organization that size? I think it's really uh, two things. And, and, and a lot of big organizations may do this, but what I would make sure I, would happen is, uh, you know, it's, it's cliche to say it's about the people and it's about the mission. That's, that's all true. What I've learned at... Homeboy is that when our client is in crisis, or even a client that's actually talking to you in the hallway, we call them trainees, I'll call them clients, um, you got to be centered. You say client, you, we're speaking about the former gang members who are now comfortable. They're yeah. gang members, yeah, yeah. The homeboys and homegirls, right? Former gang members looking to change their life, right? Uh, uh, and and for the, our clients, or our homies and homeboys, 
all their life they've had people kind of wag their finger at them and tell them what, what they've done wrong and that they're no good and that society wants to throw them away. And so anybody who works in a human services organization and works with people who are poor and aren't housed have this struggle of how do you, how do you, you absorb the trauma and the, and, the, and, the, and the stress and the pain of the people who are standing in front of you. In the corporate world, you meet somebody in the hallway, you know, you're chit-chatting, but you have like nine things going on in your head that you're you know, thinking different way. Here you need to be centered and focused that this is what's being, what you need to do for that person today is the most important thing. And what I've learned is you don't worry about setting precedents that if you're going to do something for this person today, that you got to do the same thing for someone else tomorrow. No, it's you got to treat everybody as an individual and what they actually need uh, along the way. So... So part of that, what I would take to a big corporation is let's not worry about setting precedent and doing something in the big wide system, but what an individual person needs, that's what we're going to focus on. Now, whether that it's a client, or whether that is a manager, a low-level manager, mid-level manager, high-level manager. Um, so that's, the, that's sort of the, the big number one. And big number two is, um, and it's this interesting point, is I've kind of learned in my life where this is now a much more what I've learned at Homeboy is to understand my own spirituality in a much different way, in a, a much deeper way. And I, I picked this up from Father Greg, but other people talk about joy, right? You got you to gotta lead with joy. You got to find foundational joy in what people do and have a balance. And I think organizations don't spend enough time allowing joy to happen, allowing people to find their joy and, and making that work. And so uh, those are the two big changes I, I, or two big topics I would bring with me back to a big organization joy over discipline maybe and people over rules people over rules definitely people over rules um and and uh joy over discipline i mean it, you know oftentimes and you know you run in big in big organizations you know people get rule bound and and uh you got to be disciplined about the rule you got to always follow the rules and i'm not saying that we're going to do anything illegally or immoral but it but it is like come on how do you How do you help somebody in a, in a particular situation? Yeah, I, I, so I like that. And I particularly like the joy part. I think uh, creating an environment in a sense, the way I think about it is creating an environment where you can bring all of yourself to work, actually, and, and be who you truly are. That, I think, creates that joy and, and also the, the focus on, on people that, that you speak about. If I can say a third thing, as, as we said along the way, um, and this may be true of other organizations as well, but a way I've... Definitely understood, uh, homeboy. Uh, it, look, if you're a human services organization, right, um, this gets onto this diversity perspective. You need to have any. I learned this at Airmark. Any well-run corporation has management team that looks like their frontline workers. So translate that to the nonprofit world. Your management team needs to needs to look like having this type of diversity as your the people you are serving along the way. Now it's not going to be perfectly matched up, but people. But you want to get much closer to, and so we're we've been really um, good about promoting people from within and promoting people with lived experience. And so over half of our management team are people who are former clients. And as I've talked to other nonprofits, uh, you know, we have a nonprofit community here. Not as many of those organizations have as much diversity of of people with lived experience as as others, but as I think they should have. And so I think big organizations are kind of slower at getting there. And yet big organizations actually have the resources to, to make that happen. 
And it's not like you can just say, okay, now we're just going to hire people with lived experience. You have to know, you have now over-invest into their training and to their development because they they don't have those same set of 15 years of work experience as, as quote-unquote professional people. I'm trying to think through how that would work because I think just like you described the tyranny of having to deliver the quarterly results uh, to your shareholders. I can also see in some of the big organizations how the fundraising drives so many things and, you know, the, you have to get the, the budgets if, you know, they, there's just a whole bunch of constraints. Uh, there's uh, donor regulations that, oh, we can't lose money. What about anything from anti-terror legislation to you know, uh, anti-corruption things that can be really difficult to deal with when you when you work in some of these um, these very very difficult contexts that we operate in. And so, have if if you were to move back into to sort of this uh, the the top tier of of uh, the private sector again into these uh, Fortune 500 companies, do you do you see any of them actually moving in that direction? Are any of them able to focus on people over rules, uh, have some fun, some real joy in the workplace. And and the diversity, I guess, is getting there. But do you, do you see anybody doing it? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a, very, a very good point and sobering question. Um, I, you know, it's, I don't think so, but I think we're on the, on the uh, uh, tipping point of this. I mean, if you think about the last, as I think about the last couple of years, and there's this uh, concept about... Uh, workplace engagement, how do you engage your employees, uh, particularly in this pandemic, you know, people just, people want a purposeful job. And I guess what I'm trying to, trying to say is, boy, if you're a corporation or if you're an organization that wants to sort of live by those sort of goals, uh, hey, hey, here's how you do it. You have to, you have to sort of have people over process, right? You have to sort of make, uh, give enough latitude for, for mistakes to happen. And, and you have to sort of have more laughter in the workplace and more hugs in the workplace. And it doesn't work for everybody. And I understand what I'm saying is sort of a little bit out there, but you got to move. You got to move that big battleship in the direction of what you're trying to accomplish. And it takes a, it takes a standing from from top on down. No, I, I don't think it's out there. I think it's fantastic. And I totally agree with it. I just see some very strong incentives moving against it. I'll give you an example of, of um, for Homeboy, where we struggle. You know, we have... We don't get much government funding, and we're one of the few nonprofits, sizable nonprofits out there that doesn't have a large amount. Less than ten percent of our funding comes from the some from the government, and it's not through lack of trying because I've been trying <laughs> along the way. Um, but we we don't succeed. You know, not as, first of all, there's not a lot of requests for proposals, as we say here in the states, that goes out for reentry services, people coming out of the jail system and, and helping them out. Right, and then when they do come out, they're very prescriptive with the way a government person wants to see service being performed. We do not; most of the time, we don't agree with how they say they want their service to perform. We have our own way of going about it. And I'm going to tell the story, but let me first say, a number of years ago, the folks at UCLA, a big university here in Los Angeles, did an independently funded study and measured homeboys. Success, quote unquote. You never get Father Greg to say success, but this is for a study. And so what it showed was uh, clients who've been part of the Homeboy program, two years later, have a recidivism rate going back in the jail system on a renewed charge of only 30%. 
And that recidivism rate compares so favorably to the statewide average of 70%. So here we are over two times better than the statewide average of helping people not go back into the jail system. And we're dealing with serious violent offenders along the way. So without a doubt, what Homeboy does works. It really works, right? And so, you know, I came in uh, at Homeboy with the hubris of a private uh, industry executive thinking, geez, all I got to do is, Homeboy's got a great brand, new management team. I can just go to the elected officials' offices and say, listen, here's the the study results. Give us money to do it a Homeboy way and we'll be all set. (laughs) No, I haven't made make that grade happen. And so... There's now my there's a particular story and it kind of touches on on two points at once. And finally, after a number of years, an RFP came out for case, what's called case management work here in Los Angeles County, right? And so we it's a great we have eight case managers on our staff. It'd be wonderful to have those funded by state and county funds. And so we applied and and we were able to get. Um, two positions funded and they said, you know, work with those, start with those two. And if you do a good job, you know, you can get more positions funded. So a year later, we, we asked, Hey, can we, can we uh, go from two to four being funded? And they said, no, cause you know, the, the case managers you have working uh, on the account are not doing a good job of filling out the database. And so I, I said, hmm. so I said, are they, is it incomplete? He said, well, it's not, not, it's like 90% complete. It's not 100% complete. Then I go and talk to our two case managers about it. Now, here's the thing. These are our two best case managers. These people, these are people with lived experience. They don't have college degrees. They might not even have high school degrees, but they are great at helping men and women get out of gang life. They are great. And so if you looked at the, everyone who was on the case load on that contract, we've had good success with them. We just don't get all the information 100% into the database on the same time schedule as what the county wants us to do. And so we say to the, I'm like I'm, so we say to the people who created this da- county database, I mean, there's someone who went to a college and university and they came out with like one year of experience working with people and they wrote the prescriptions, what type of data need, they need to collect. Hey, I'm not against data. I, th- I know it's the importance of data. But they're missing the point that we probably have the most successful case managers in all their contracts, but they're holding us back because our people with experience, it's hard for our people with experience to sit down for hours at a time and do data. I'm not excusing it. We'll get better. But that's sort of an example of institutional bias, I guess, or institutional racism that you can't, that if, you, if you're trying to get people with experience. So in other words, if we were not, so let me, last point. Thankfully, Homeboy has generous donors and we're privately funded. If we were very dependent on government funds, I would probably have to change it around and not employ those case managers, probably employ other case managers who can fill out the database. That's where it's, where that's a little bit of a heartbreaking part of this story. Yeah, it sounds to me like uh, the reason you don't get government funding is that you're unwilling to compromise on, on purpose. Uh, yes, <laughs> exactly right. And, you know, and, and, and I think you would be surprised uh, how many of the listeners to this show are nodding their heads right now. Part of me almost don't want to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Right? So, so you have this organization, and somehow you're spoiled beyond belief in that you have an incredibly charismatic, purpose-driven founder who, who keeps a purpose on track. And then on top of that, you get a $6 million man in 
who's been trained left, right, and center on how to manage things. So, so from a, a management perspective, you are very well equipped, I would say. What about scaling? Is that something you think about? Because you you have this great model, you know it works. You are, I think, the biggest program in the U.S., but no doubt there are many people who would want your services who who, who don't access them in other cities and across. What about scaling? What about building something much bigger? Yeah, yeah. Let me. Uh, I want to answer that from a couple of perspectives. You know, <clears throat> as the, as a corporate trained guy, right? You're focused on um, scaling. Hey, if you got a good thing going, do more of it, right? Uh, and if, if Father Greg was here talking to you, uh, he couldn't care less how many people we serve. He just whoever's sitting in front of him today, that's who he's going to help. Uh, and we're going to stretch all our resources. Um, you know, we've. As I'm sitting here thinking as I'm talking, it's like I'm, it sounds like we're super successful, but we don't have a lot of money. We struggle from from time. There are many years there we struggle payroll to payroll, making it all work, stretching our nickels to help as many people as possible. And so. Um, yes, when we do get more money, we help more people. And so in my time, we were, went from being an $11 million a year organization to now a $30 million, as, I, as I said. And, and so thereby, we've tripled the size of the number of people we are helping. Uh, unfortunately, L.A. County is the gang capital of the country and the world. So there's a lot of gang members still to be served in L.A. County, and we're hopefully growing to, to serve more of them. Uh, but the other thing is, though, we understand that this, this is not... We have something that, in my words, something that's pretty special, and we want to teach, and we're willing to teach other folks. So a lot of people have come to visit Homeboy over these past years, and and so pre-pandemic, we actually counted, you know, that we had uh, over 8,000 visitors to Homeboy come through our door and experience what we're about. And over the years, we've seen lots of organizations, um, small and large, come to Homeboy and learn what, we're, what we do, how we go about it, uh, and we're willing to share. And so about seven years ago, we created our, our Homeboy Network. Look, we don't want to own locations around the country, but we're willing to share. And so, uh, and so what now we have is 150 organizations from 42 states and seven countries who have modeled themselves after Homeboy Industries. And, uh, and the important thing is they, you know, they, they pick and choose. They take what we do and then bring it in because everybody has – Problems are locally based. I mean, so a gang situation in Chicago is definitely than a gang situation in L.A. And and really, so we've been now, our teams have gone on the two trips in Northern Ireland. As an example, the, the gang situation in Northern Ireland is obviously different in L.A., but boy, the elements of sort of about uh, uh, rivalries and gang members and demonizing and, and what society thinks of folks and those is all the same, right? And so um, we, so our folks co around the world for help sometimes, but then a lot of people come here. And so our goal is to, is to sort of, my, my goal, my goal, my goal is to sort of help homeboys uh, uh, visibility in terms of there's a homeboy way of going about things. People come take advantage of it, learn by it and, and make it local. And most importantly, grow from your, the people you are serving, allow them to be the next generation of leaders. So it's, it is as a beacon you scale. It is not as a headquarter. Yes. It's not as a headquarter. That's correct. You spoke a bit about uh, spirituality before and, and the role that that plays. And, and it's quite a central theme in your book. And, and, and Father Greg is a, is a Jesuit priest. As 
you were writing, for example, that you feel like it's being soaked in spirituality to work at Homeboy. I thought, what a beautiful way of describing your workplace. And, and I can see how that brings joy. At the same time, I was thinking, is that also excluding people? The the sort of I, I fully realize that you're not uh, evangelizing at at work. That's not the point. I mean, you know, and but as a, as a Christian myself, I would say I I'm probably very Scandinavian in sort of keeping that back office. That that's that's something that inspires me what to do. But it's not something I would bring to work uh, up front. It it would be something that I would hope would transform the way I I behave at my workplace. But but I wouldn't talk about it. And, and you know, would you set this up in Afghanistan? Yeah. Let me, um, I, I, I want to talk more about it, and I'll get to your Afghanistan question in, in, in a second. Um, look, for me as a corporate guy, I always wanted to show me the rules. I'm going to win by the rules, right? It's like you never talk about your own spirituality or talk about God. You just don't do it. And it was so, when I first joined Homeboy, it was so a little bit, I was actually uncomfortable with all the talk of people's own spirituality, their own gods. It's like, well, and I, pre- and I didn't like, I wasn't, I was only uncomfortable because I was wondering if they were waiting for me to say something as well, as opposed to what they're feeling. But what I come to learn is, is what make, one of the things that makes Homeboy successful is like any, any play, anybody who works in the human service organization, right? It's about people, the clients need to feel safe and secure. And at Homeboy, I mean, the streets are tough for homies out on the streets. We're a sanctuary, essentially. They can walk through those doors and be, be more of themselves. What we do is we talk about silk and spirituality, but one of the things we, we, we won't shy away from is understanding that, uh, that God is too busy loving us to be judging us, right? And so we don't judge people. We care for them. We help. We hold up a mirror and help people see their own goodness in God. And my observation is, you know, so many of, of the, well, what we do is we have NA classes and AA classes, and, and transformation happens through those process, through that way of thinking, and that is a spiritually based way of thinking. And, uh, and so that's what really makes Homeboy work is the relationship side, the, the loving side, and the, and the spiritual side. Now, we don't have classes on spirituality, <laughs> we don't have classes on religion. You know, the only thing where you get it is we have every morning, it's a beautiful thing, we have a morning meeting and everybody shows up in the center space. Uh, we read our mission statement. We r- read announcements. We sing people happy birthday. You know, sometimes you'll be amazed how many people will say this, that's the first time in my life I've had happy birthday songs to me because they've been incarcerated all their life. We, we celebrate, you know, getting off parole. We celebrate getting driver's license. We end with a thought of the day, and it's rotating people to a thought, and we end with a prayer, and this is the only time. So it's a rotating who gets to say the prayer. And so it's said, whoever's saying the prayer is, is to their their God, their religion, however they want to say it, articulate, inarticulate, but it's heartfelt. And, and, that's, and that's where we leave it. And so what I'm saying is in a human service agent, for people to really get through their pain, and they, in the end, it's not like we're telling them to do this, but in the end what happens is the own spirituality gets folks there. And so what I would imagine, back to the Afghanistan question, um, yeah, I feel very inc- it, 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 unable to answer this, knowing everything that happens in Afghanistan, what it's like working in foreign countries with oppressive regimes. But if someone's going to change your life, they have some of their, whatever their spirituality is, could be, that's what they got to hark, hark it into, lean into, and get them through the suffering 
and get him to realizing that they are a good person and they're not being judged and they're not being demonized. They can move their life forward. Yeah, it it was a slightly unfair question. I apologize for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the I think I think the um, I think what I what I have experienced is that what people speak to across many cultures is that you show them who you are, and and show them how you think of the world, your own spirituality, whatever that might be, or sure. or your own right. lack of belief in a god, but then believe in in some principles or in the worth of every single human being. I think. Showing others who you are opens so many doors, and 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 quite often in in Africa, for example, where I lived for a number of years, I I found that that you really have some wonderful conversations, and and it opens doors to be able to speak about your religion, and that it's a shame that at times we as a community are quite secular in a sense. In yeah, the, yeah, the no, I'm with you on business. that, right, right. But I also really get the point that it is a balance and you have to be so careful to leave. There's a lot of power in this as well. And you have to leave an, an open space for whoever to, is there to feel comfortable and, and welcome, no matter what what they think That's and right. how they pray and, and who they are. Exactly right. Maybe a last question, Thomas. If you were today to give advice to yourself, your 25-year-old or your 29-year-old self, just embarking on this extremely successful career, climbing up the corporate ladder, what would that be? Yeah, um, I want to. I don't want to be too glib on what I'm saying. <laughs> um, Clearly, I was driven to succeed, and obviously the, the cliche would be to sort of appreciate and to revel in more the, more the uh, journey than necessarily the, getting to the goal. But it would also be, I, w- I wish I had learned more about my own spirituality at a younger age and can help have been a more balanced, I would have been more mentally balanced or more emotionally balanced uh, in, in those earlier years. Um, not that anything was off and wrong, but it's like I think I have found much more joy and fulfillment and happiness in these past nine years. Uh, that would have been would have been interesting to see if, I, as a young man, could I have seen seen all that and had my eyes open, my heart open to see people in a different way. And um, maybe I would have gotten into the human services work sooner. Um, um, uh, but it is, there's, I guess the other thing is to say is uh, there's different ways of thinking out there. And, and, um, and for us here, I've, and one of the themes of the, what I try to write down is like there's two Americas, the America I live in and America the poor and demonized lived in. And go out and reach more into that poor and demonized America because, listen, everybody, I wanna, everybody can help out somebody else, right? You don't have to be a, a Jesuit priest who's almost a saint to do this work. As you know, Lars, you, you go out and you've been in these countries and people can, through action, go help other people. And I wish I didn't spend as much time in my corporate job and probably spent more time helping helping people along the way. Thomas, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on Trumanitarian. Thank you for writing your book. And I should say, it's actually a much um, broader book than, than what we have discussed today. There is a, a really interesting critique of sort of the 
some of the more brutal capitalism in the US and and some really interesting suggestions right. as to how to to change that to to not produce such a devastating outcome from a human perspective as as you sometimes see and I I, I just encourage everybody to anybody to 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 read the book it's the homeboy way and it's published what mid february i believe it comes out that's correct mid february and thank you for the work you do with homeboy industries is is truly an inspiration to to become familiar with 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 that piece of work it uh, i really enjoyed that thank you well well, well thank you for having me and and uh, for you and anybody's listening uh, if you're ever in los angeles stop by and you know i don't say that again glibly because we get so many visitors but you actually get to f- you feel the sense and you feel the vibe that's in it's in homeboy and being with the home girls and homeboys is just just terrific so i'm happy to have as many visitors as we can see we'll take you up on that thank you very much all right thank you very much it's about the rights and the freedom to be for people to choose their path in life and dream souls of men beyond what you see Stages are different for each who will lead. Cycles of outsiders that get fat checks, fly in, fly out of places with slums and jets. Ask better questions, pick apart, educate. And no one is safe, we're here to build and debate. We are, we are searching for more. Open up your mind beyond rich or poor. For the truth, you've been warned. Humanitarian.